Well, welcome everyone. Uh, thanks for joining uh, with us, and uh, thank you, Praise Team. What a wonderful song to to talk about, to lead into talking about the verses we're going to talk about today. Um, so mealtimes, they can serve a number of different purposes. First and foremost, mealtimes are a time where we get sustenance to survive. But in true human fashion, we use these times in uh, multitasking for things additional to just refueling of our bodies. Some people may have meals alone, in which case they may spend time reading the morning paper or reading online news, finding out what's happened in the world the day, the day before. Maybe they catch up on yesterday's sports highlights, finding out how their teams have been doing. Others might spend time reading their Bible or taking some time to pray for the day ahead of them or the week ahead of them. Other meals, though, may be of a more social nature. Some families make it a priority to sit around the dinner table together and share about their days. I know that while I was growing up, my family made this a priority. Everybody was to join together at the table and share in the meal. We've had some interesting conversations around the table, that's for sure. Yet another kind of social meal is that of a celebratory nature. Maybe it's a meal that you shared uh, with family and friends to celebrate a graduation or a scholastic achievement. Celebrating the time and hard work that has been put into attaining that degree or diploma. Sharing how you overcame certain adversity to achieve that honor and are looking forward to what that means for you and your family and their future endeavors. Then there's that of a celebratory wedding reception. A time of celebration where friends and family celebrate the union of a husband and wife, the creation of a new family. It can be a time to share stories about the couple, a time to share in other activities, such as dancing or other fun games that the wedding party may have had planned and thought up. Along the same lines, and as Al mentioned and spoke about last week, meals can just be used as a time to celebrate events just because someone wants to and because they value those events or those things in some way and wish to share that with others around them. One thing all of these social meals have in common, though, is that they can be used to better get to know people. Sharing a meal with another person can be disarming. Make no mistake that sharing a meal with somebody can be something that can cause people to become more open with each other. I'm reminded of a story that I heard uh, while I was in university. In one of my lectures on criminology, the professor told us a story about one of his colleagues. This colleague was skilled in the art of interrogation. You see, in an interrogation, the side seeking information often uses a number of social tricks, per se, in order to get the other party to offer and open up willingly about information that would be useful to the police investigation. In this particular investigation and interrogation, a suspect was accused of murder. The officer had worked methodically through all of the techniques he had learned and honed over his years of experience. He had spent hours with the suspect, asking him questions about the missing person, asking questions about the evidence that they had found at the scene of the crime but no dice. 
The accused refused to offer any information that was of any value to the officer. In a last-ditch effort, the officer offered to get the accused some fast food, as it had been quite a while since they began the interrogation. The suspect, somewhat surprised, obliged and gave the officer his order. A short time later, the officer came back into the interrogation room with the food for the suspect, as well as a meal for himself. He sat down at the table and began to eat with the suspect, having a somewhat normal but nonetheless cordial conversation that had nothing to do with the crimes he was investigating. As they finished the meal, the officer slowly directed the conversation back to that which of, of the crimes he was investigating. There was a long pause as the suspect contemplated the questions yet again. Finally, the suspect offered up a confession to the crimes that had been committed. Though you might be thinking to yourself that this story is a rather strange one for me to be using to illustrate the meal that Jesus had, which we're going to talk about today, I think this confession-type motivation and motive was, that, uh, was the same that Simon the Pharisee was aiming for when he invited Jesus to come and have a meal. You see, the Pharisees and the religious elite of the day were less than thrilled with Jesus arriving on the scene. Rumors were spreading, and people were talking about the things that this Jesus character was doing. This threatened the power that the religious elite held and used over all of the common people. In chapter 7 of Luke alone, we read about several miracles that occurred and how the people, both common and religious, reacted. After healing the centurion's servant and raising a widow's son from the dead, we read in chapter 7, verses 16 and 17, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Shortly after that conversation, Jesus had a meeting with John the Baptist. In verses 29 and 30, we read, When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. You see, the Pharisees didn't like Jesus. They didn't like what he was saying, and they didn't like who he was doing all of these things with. To that point, I think that Simon was attempting to set Jesus up. He wanted to get close to Jesus, not just to show others that what they thought of him was wrong, but that so he could prove and uncover that it was a scam, that him and his counterparts were correct in what they believed about Jesus and what they thought Jesus was trying to set in motion. To that point, Simon had a plan. He would invite Jesus to have a meal at his house. There he could converse with Jesus about all of the things he had heard the people say. Potentially, he could catch Jesus in a lie or even in a trap to prove that he really wasn't as great as all the common folk were saying. And so at the end of Luke chapter 7, we read about the meal that Simon the Pharisee had with Jesus. So again, 36 to 50 says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, 
And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiping them with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, uh, answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, another 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were around the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, right from the start of the meal, Simon did not treat Jesus with any sort of respect. In Jewish culture at the time, it was customary for hosts to treat honored guests in some specific ways. So to start with, they would normally give the guest a kiss of peace while placing their hand on their shoulder. Additionally, the hosts would have their guests' sandals removed and their feet washed of dirt in order to rejuvenate them. Finally, the host would also often anoint their guests with olive oil. However, in this case, these things and specific acts were not afforded to Jesus. Simon specifically seems to have not performed these rituals on purpose, subtly showing to both Jesus and the people around that he did not think Jesus was worthy of any such honor that a typical guest would have been afforded. The next thing we read in these verses is about the woman coming to the meal. Although it seems strange that some random person shows up, we have to remember that at this time period, it was quite common for these types of meals to be happening in an open courtyard, with the doors of the house surrounding it to be somewhat open to the public. This is especially the case for more prestigious people in the city. This courtyard would have been easily accessible to anyone, uh, and especially with Simon's motives to insult Jesus, as we've already seen by his initial treatment, this would have been an open invitation to anyone who wanted to come and see the fireworks that were about to happen. The more people Simon could get there to witness the embarrassment he wanted to dole out on Jesus— the better. Verses 37 and 38, we read, 
And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. As the woman enters, there's shock from all the onlookers. This woman enters, and we have her described here that she is a sinner. Now, there are two trains of thought when it comes to this descriptor. Either, number one, the woman may have been married to a prominent sinner within the city, well known to everyone, or second, and more popularly held, is that this woman would have been a well-known prostitute in the area. Either way, this woman was recognized by everyone and around and known not to be a character held in high regard. We can also tell this from the fact that Simon was taken so back by the fact that Jesus would even let someone of the woman's background touch him in any manner. At this point in the story, I think sometimes we mistake the idea of what we have read. Some may read this story and see the actions of the woman here as her trying to make amends for something that she's done, hoping that in some way Jesus will give or offer her something in return. Rather, the actions of the woman that we read here are are both the result of what she already knows and believes about Jesus and that she can't bear to see Jesus treated in such a rude way as Simon has. She's there out of gratitude, not out of duty. Potentially, she had heard Jesus' teaching or had some sort of conversation with him that's unrecorded. Whatever it was, the joy that Jesus had offered her, she had received. Coupling that with the embarrassment of seeing him disrespectfully treated, and she took it upon herself to anoint him with expensive ointment, to wash his feet with her tears, and to kiss his feet. Modern times, again, have blunted the audacity of the woman's actions we read here in the story. As she begins to cry, she realizes she has nothing to dry Jesus' feet. What does she do but let her hair down and use it to dry them? While this action may not seem too shocking to us now, other than maybe a little strange that somebody would be using hair as a towel, in this day and time, this was massively shocking action. You see, back in that day, women would only untie their hair for their husbands. In fact, in the Talmud, a woman letting her hair down for a man other than her husband would have been grounds for divorce. So, to recap, we have a woman who's potentially a prostitute, who has come to Jesus, began to cry, weeping, letting the tears hit his feet, letting her hair down to dry them, and then she starts to kiss his feet. You can imagine that everyone in the courtyard would have just been staring at this display, silent, wondering, how does that woman know Jesus? She's touching him now. Why is she touching him? Wait, no, no. She's letting her hair down for him? What is happening and why is he not stopping her? All throughout this, Jesus was calm, probably even continuing to his conversations at the table. Jesus did not judge her for her track record. Instead, he had forgiven her for her past indiscretions, and she knew that. 
She had faith that Jesus, uh, in Jesus and what he had taught and his message that he was bringing to the people at that time. That even someone like her could be saved. At this point, Simon just couldn't take it anymore. Verse 39, we read, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon tries to show off his moral superiority and masterful intellect, pointing out that there's no way Jesus is who everyone says he is if he's letting a person with such a terrible reputation touch him. Interestingly enough, even in this comment, Simon insults Jesus, insinuating a sexual nature to the actions which everyone in the courtyard is witnessing. About Simon's actions, Kenneth Bailey writes, The word to touch in biblical language is used on occasion for sexual intercourse in both Genesis, Proverbs, and 1 Corinthians. Obviously, this is not what's intended here. But Simon's use of the word in this context has clear sexual overtones. He is affirming that in his opinion, it is all very improper, and Jesus, if he were a prophet, would know who she is, uh, who she was, and would, of course, refuse his attention from such woman. Simon does this both to disprove the rumors about Jesus being a prophet and to further insult Jesus. Simon wanted to see Jesus treat the woman as he and the other religious elite would have. Simon wanted to see her banished. He didn't want to see her forgiven for her actions and the sins which she had committed. Jesus, as Jesus usually does, takes this opportunity to teach Simon and the other onlookers a lesson. Verses 40 to 42, we read, And Jesus answered, uh, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them loved him more? In this parable, Jesus sets out two people who have rather large debts. These people are meant to represent sinners uh, And while one has a debt ten times larger than the other, both are still quite in debt. You see, a denarius was equal to about a day's wages. Pair that with the fact that in that day, people barely just made enough to get by. And even the person who owed just 50 denarii would have still been in considerable debt. Obviously, Jesus is also making the comparison that Simon is the 50 denarii debtor, while the woman is the 500 denarii debtor. While Simon may have kept himself clean uh, from the sin on the scale and number of times that the woman has fallen into it, Simon is still in debt. Both have the same problem. They're in debt. Both have this problem on a rather large scale. Both can't escape the sin problem on their own. Another way we can think of this is with the analogy I've used in, pa- in the past about the stranded swimmers. As a refresher, imagine that an airplane flies over the South Atlantic and crashes a thousand miles away from the coast. In the plane, there are three individuals, a great Olympic swimmer, an average swimmer, 
and someone who cannot swim at all. The Olympic swimmer calls out, follow me, I'll get us out of this. And he takes off on an impressive crawl, heading for the tip of South America, a thousand miles away. The other two jump in after him. About 30 seconds later, the non-swimmer goes down to Davy Jones' locker. That is to say, they drown. It takes about 30 minutes for the average swimmer to be deep-sixed. But the champion swimmer, on the other hand, churns away for 25 hours, covering an impressive 50 miles. Terrific. Only 475 more hours to go. He'll be there in 19 days if he doesn't slow down. You see, the woman is the person who can't swim at all. Simon, the Olympic swimmer. All that skill, though, won't do him much good because he's not going to make it to land. And this is a common point that so, uh, so-called regular Christians sometimes fail to grasp. We like to compare ourselves to others. Maybe we think that we don't need as much help because we have integrity that others do not. God, I work with compulsive liars. The only honest man I know is myself. Surely I'm acceptable. Maybe we think that keeping ourselves in line domestically means that we are in good shape. In this X-rated world, my life is wholesome G. I'm faithful to my wife. I love her and my children. I'm a good husband, father, son. I reckon that's all I need. Maybe even socially or monetarily, we think that we can make our own way. God, I'm truly colorblind. My money, and lots of it, goes to the needy. I volunteer at the, uh, the Crisis Pregnancy Center, and I really do care. The world needs more people like me, and so does heaven. Or maybe we think that church things mean that we're covered. God, I literally live at the church. That means that my goodness will surely be accepted. While God does see these things, and many are noble, they can make up for the debt and the shortcomings that we all have. While I may not have been a drug addict saved from the streets, or the alcoholic saved from a life of being a slave to a bottle, I still have sinned just the same and am in need of forgiveness. As Simon thought about Jesus' parable, he understood and knew he was caught and begrudgingly answers Jesus' question. Verses 42 and 43 read, Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Now, this can be somewhat of a complicated point. I think there's a tendency and a temptation to think that Jesus is somehow saying that someone who has come from a very dark place is somehow elevated over someone who gave their life to Christ as a church kid at age five. Like, a Christian lifer can't love God as much as one who struggled so hard to beat uh, things like addiction. But I believe that this idea forgets the characteristics of God. You see, God is an infinitely good God. Any sin, no matter how large or small we as humans may think it is, is an infinite transgression against God. It warrants an eternal punishment, separation from God. Though all sin warrants this, I believe that when it comes to human tendencies, 
and how we try to elevate what sins are worse than others, it's easier for those who have what we think are lesser sins to forget about that they are in just as much need of, of forgiveness as those who have committed so-called large sins. The consciousness of their sinfulness is what's needed. Why do many Christians show little love for Christ? Because they have never truly seen what great sinners they are and then how sure, sweet, and complete Christ's forgiveness is. Verses 44 to 47, we read, Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus outlines that for, si- for Simon, the fact that the woman did all of these things because she is conscious of the debt to which she has been forgiven, while Simon is still unaware. In the closing verses, in verse 48 to 50, we read, And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began saying among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What a meal! Simon had started out by inviting Jesus to a meal with the intentions of catching him up. He wanted to prove Jesus wasn't who Everyone was saying he was, that he wasn't all that great, that Jesus wasn't a prophet like the normal folk were saying. Like the story of the interrogation I told you at the beginning, Simon may have been trying to get Jesus to let his guard down in order to get him to admit that it was all a ruse, that Jesus was just faking it. Maybe he was really in it just for the fame or the fortune that he could attain. Instead, though, At the end of the meal, Jesus kicks it up a notch. And he claims to do something only God can do. Forgive sins. More than Simon bargained for, I'm sure. Fortunately for us, that same offer of forgiveness that Jesus gave to the woman is available to all of us. It takes us being conscious of our great debt that we realize our need for forgiveness, but that it is available freely to each and every one of us. I'll leave you with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, which says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because, he, uh, because of the great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him 
and seated, uh, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in the kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. Dear Heavenly Father, we just, we thank you, God, for that offer, God. We thank you for your son that you uh, allowed to come here, God, that came and uh, took the punishment for our sins, God, that we can come to you in such a great debt and that you offer us forgiveness of that debt, God. I just ask that you remind us of the, the desperate nature we're in, God. Uh, just remind us from where we have come and the, the, gr- the grace which you've offered. I just ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.